1901, a celebration was held at the Phoenix Indian School. The school, then boasting multiple buildings, a dining hall and kitchen, a hospital, a laundry, waterworks, and a general administration building, was celebrating both its first decade in operation and the graduation of a small number of its students. The celebration even included an appearance by U.S. President William McKinley, who was passing through Phoenix. The president offered his congratulations on the success of the school, and it was apparent across the country that Phoenix was one of the preeminent centers for Indian education in the entire country. Then, four years later, the school would again be in a celebratory mood, inviting back several alumni for a reunion. And it's during this celebration that we see how this paragon for Indian education had actually done very little to benefit its students. Most of those who attended had gotten their jobs because of the school, but those jobs hadn't helped them assimilate into wider American culture, which was ostensibly the whole point. All worked on a reservation, holding jobs such as a teacher, tribal policeman, school seamstress, mechanic, assistant school disciplinarian, and agency interpreter. Historian Robert A. Trennert, one of the foremost historians on the subject of the Phoenix Indian School, probably put it best. The institution had proved its work to the community of Phoenix as a source of civic pride and economic enrichment. However, quote, it is more difficult to state with certainty that the school met the real education needs of the students in its first decade of existence. For them, education meant forced removal from home, loss of freedom, and entrance into an alien world. End quote. And just how badly this preeminent center of Indian education treated the students entrusted to it is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 157, Forced Assimilation. Welcome back, everyone. Before we start this week's episode, I need to slip in a small correction that was pointed out to me by listener Bill M. Apparently, the port city in Sonora that I've been pronouncing as Guaymas should actually be pronounced with a soft G, so something more like Guaymas. In my defense, this seems contrary to the Spanish pronunciation I learned, so it did take someone with more local knowledge to let me know about this. Thank you, Bill. Okay, so last week we covered a necessarily brief overview of the federal Indian boarding school policy that went into effect in the 1880s, along with the political wrangling that would lead to the foundation of the Phoenix Indian School in 1891. This week, we are going to talk about the first few decades of the school's existence by tracing, as best we can, the actual experience that the students endured. I know I promised at the end of the last episode that we would look at one of the biggest black marks on an already blacked mark record, that is the absolute abuses that occurred because of the school's outing system. However, I regret to say that I found too many black marks to talk about, so I'm going to have to set the outing system aside until I can do it proper justice next week. As I mentioned in the last episode, the school first opened its doors on September 3rd, 1891, 
temporarily housed in the West End Hotel. The initial class was 41 Akamel Odom and Maricopa students, all boys, who were between 7 and 20 years old, mostly in the 16 to 18 years old range. School Superintendent Wellington Rich described this initial bunch as, quote, raw recruits who can neither speak or understand English, end quote. Trenert, who really is one of the best sources for an overview of the school's early history, says that despite their age, most of these youth were put into the equivalent of kindergarten. The Indian Bureau schools consisted of eight grades, broken into primary grades 1 through 4 and advanced grades 1 through 4. Remember, though, that the point of these schools is not really to educate Amerindians. They were about assimilation and wringing every last drop of their native cultures out of them. So most of the students were dropped into primary grade one, which focused on teaching them English, as well as things like the first ten numbers. This probably goes without saying, but a high degree of attention was focused on teaching students English and then forcing them to use it. This was, of course, just one way of breaking students off from their cultural heritage. So native languages were banned and suppressed, often using capital punishment, and English promoted in their place. But the other aspect to this emphasis was that these youth, again, were not being educated for education's sake. They were being trained to enter the workforce, and the one thing American bosses definitely wanted was workers who spoke English. To keep up the cultural genocide, the Phoenix Indian School followed the playbook from most other boarding schools. Once students arrived, they would be broken away from others of the same tribe wherever possible. That obviously couldn't work with this first class, but by 1900, less than a decade after opening, more than a thousand students from across the territory had passed through the doors of the Phoenix Indian School. In fact, in 1898, Superintendent S.M. McCowan decided to import students from the Hopi, Navajo, and Apache reservations, along with others from as far away as California and Oregon. He did this because he had a low regard for his Akamel and Tohono O'odham students, so he wanted other Indians he considered more advanced to take advantage of the school's work training. The practical effect of this policy is that if you mix a bunch of students from different tribes with different languages and different cultures, the only way for them to communicate is through the language that you are promoting. But when they got to the school, the cultural genocide went one step further. One of the first things students underwent when they arrived at the school was a haircut and a bath. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that doesn't sound so bad compared to what horrors are probably awaiting them once they are in the school. However, these seemingly innocuous things are yet another tool to separate the youth from their heritage. You cut their hair to make them look like Americans, not to mention literally sharing off any tribal traditions centered around grooming. And once again, forgive me for not being anything close to an expert on this, but from what I've read, some tribes actually had taboos about when hair could be cut. As for the baths, well, a couple sources mentioned that school officials would douse students in kerosene. This was supposed to help with lice and other infections, but really, can you imagine being washed down with the same stuff they burn in lamps? But as bad as that sounds... It wasn't the worst part of these baths. No, the worst part was what the students found after 
the bath. Because while they were going through this process, school officials would take their clothes. And Trenard says it didn't matter how new or what condition those clothes were in, and discarded them. When they were finished with the bath and the haircuts, students would be issued a hat, shirt, pair of pants, shoes, and stockings. Honestly, I'm having a very hard time not picturing Andy Dufresne's introduction to Shawshank Prison while relating this. Once officially entered into the school, students soon found themselves in an utterly alien environment, and a hostile one at that. I touched on the English-focused primary grades, but once they went to the advanced grades, they were force-fed the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, along with penmanship and geography. But are you ready for the kicker? When the school opened, there was a grand total of one teacher. His name was Hugh Patton, himself an Akamel Odom, and he was assisted by a couple of the older students. A short eight years later, even when the school had a student population of over 700, there were only seven full-time teachers on the staff. This lack of educators make more sense when you realize that only half the student's day was actually dedicated to education. For the other half, they were expected to work, and work hard. This split emphasis can be seen in the fact that the school wouldn't produce a graduating class until 1901, a decade after its founding. For the student body, the weekdays were long, with them rising early in the morning and going until 9 o'clock at night. Then on Sundays, they attended a local Presbyterian church and afterward read scriptures and sang hymns. Again, with the assimilation into American culture. Once at its permanent campus, the school would have rooms set up to teach a variety of trades, such as tin snipping, blacksmithing, bricklaying, carpentry, and printing. The students would work in these rooms, learning these trades, but they would also have to clean the school as well. In fact, I've seen it claimed that one of the reasons for admitting female students was so they could handle the domestic chores and free the boys from having to do women's work. And all of this is done in an atmosphere of rigid obedience and corporal punishment. The students were divided into military companies. Given uniforms they had to wear and care for, they literally marched to meals or class or even to recreation. And this is true for the girls as well, who were issued a uniform, a long blue dress. Since it was taken for granted that they would never rise above being a housewife, the girls were rigorously schooled in all the domestic arts, cooking, cleaning, sewing, washing, and serving food. A matron was always on hand to ensure that they were growing up as proper prim ladies, which, and I know this is going to sound horribly cliche, included needlepoint and embroidery. School officials gushed about their progress, with one superintendent saying, quote, from slouchy, dissatisfied girls, this year has produced neat, ladylike, agreeable young ladies who are proud of exhibiting their achievements, end quote. Another official noted that the girls under their care had found a genuine love for cooking and for housework, at which point Trenert cuts in to say that, unfortunately, no contradicting accounts from the pupils have survived. I keep harping on this, but the idea behind everything was to instill in the students the American Protestant work ethic and Victorian morals that were so highly prized at the time. 
So the school had regulations for every aspect of daily life, with fixed punishments for any infractions. Many modern commentators have not shied away from using the word torture to describe some of the more extreme physical punishments that could be meted out for not falling in line. For the students, this was a complete different way of thinking than they were used to. The tribes they held from had a more informal structure that mixed instruction with healthy doses of play and definitely low amounts of corporal punishment. They grew up learning how to function in their tribe's society, which meant they were emotionally unprepared for the Indian school. One Akamel Odom woman named Anna Moore Shaw recalled, quote, I worked in the dining room, washing dishes and scrubbing floors. If we were not finished when the 8 a.m. whistle sounded, the dining room matron would go around strapping us all while we were still on our hands and knees. We just dreaded sore bottoms, end quote. And there is an even darker side to all of this, because the abuse was not only verbal, emotional, and physical. Let me be clear. None of my sources mention specific instances of sexual abuse at the Phoenix Indian School. However, I haven't read anywhere near everything written about the school experience, and sexual abuse was widespread and rampant in Indian Bureau schools, both on and off reservations, to the point where it's not a matter of if it happened at Phoenix, but when and how often. If I haven't made it abundantly clear by now, these were not good places to be. If school officials had any compunctions about their heavy-handed treatment, they didn't show it. One school superintendent callously remarked, quote, The only right belonging to the Indian is the right to make a man of himself. End quote. This kind of sentiment bred contempt among the Amerindian students and, unsurprisingly, resistance. Students would form small gangs that would speak their native tongues whenever they were out of earshot of their school overseers. Others fought back in a hundred different small ways, butting heads with the staff whenever possible and bringing on that corporal punishment that bordered on torture. One prime example is a Navajo woman named Dodesbaya, if I'm anywhere close to pronouncing that right, who not only refused to give up her language, but refused to accept the name Sadie that the school tried to force on her. Giving students good Christian names while discarding their real names was another one in the school's very stuffed bag of tricks. Dodesbaya also resorted to another form of resistance that was all too common. She ran away. In the early years of the school, officials were dealing with somewhere between 10 to 20 runaways a month. Many were apprehended by a small force assigned to this very purpose, but a lucky few managed to get away. One Hopi student, Edmund Nikwatoa, escaped from the school and walked across the Verde Valley and Mogollon Rim to return to his people. Trenert says that the runaway rate might have been even higher, except the Phoenix Indian School wasn't as bad when it came to the other great nightmare of boarding schools, diseases. Now, if we have seen one thing again and again during the course of this podcast, it's that ever since Columbus set foot on the island of Hispaniola in 1492, Amerindians were always being struck down by diseases introduced from those in the Old World. The problem became very prominent in Indian schools, where conditions were perfect for the spread of horrible diseases. 
By 1910, this problem was becoming acute for the Americans overseeing the school, as three out of every ten Indian students had trachoma, an eye infection that can lead to irreversible vision impairment and even blindness. At the same time, the rate of tuberculosis among Amerindians was four times that of other races. This is something we talked about before in episode 115, when the Chiricahua Apache children sent to Carlisle were dying from tuberculosis at an alarming rate. The cause behind these terrible numbers was a deadly cocktail of strict military discipline, regimentation, and routinization, along with poor diets and overcrowding. That last one is important, because in the early decades of the Indian schools, they were stuffed beyond their intended capacity in order to be as cost-effective as possible. This led to Amerindian children who are either in bad health or suspected bad health being crammed into these schools with everyone else. One common complaint that detractors would often point to is that many times multiple children were sharing the same bed, and you can imagine what that does for infections. The Phoenix Indian School would see two epidemics early on, one in 1899 and the other in 1907. In the first, 325 students contracted measles, while an additional 60 caught pneumonia. Within 10 days, 9 students died. In the second epidemic, a full half of the student population caught measles. During one survey of the student population, 28 Tohono O'odham students were enrolled in the fall of 1907 who were examined and deemed in good health. By the following July, so less than a year later, five developed symptoms of tuberculosis. Records are a little spotty, but at least two of those five, and maybe up to four, would die shortly from the disease. By the way, remember that I said that the Phoenix Indian School was on the low end of infectious diseases. I should also note here that what I've said didn't just apply to the off-reservation boarding schools. The clerk of the agency overseeing the Akamel Odom on their reservation reported that native girls, ages 12 to 18, were working half days, six days a week in a laundry where temperatures were known to go above 120 degrees. The clerk also noted that they all knew the girls were overworked and underfed, but they were all too powerless or too cowardly to make it stop. Up at the Fort Apache Indian School, the girls' dormitory windows were nailed shut in order to prevent escape, which in reality just ensured that they would never have adequate ventilation. To be fair, it wasn't as if the Indian Bureau was ignorant or turning a blind eye toward all of this. After the turn of the 20th century, a number of officials and humanitarian groups were taking notice of this distressing trend and putting a lot of pressure on the government to do something. One reformer said, quote, Of what use is education to an Indian with consumption? An Indian child learns to read and write, contracts trachoma, is sent home and goes blind. How does education benefit the blind Indians? End quote. Even Cato Sells, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, would say in 1915, quote, There is something fundamental here. We cannot solve the Indian problem without Indians. We cannot educate their children unless they are kept alive. End quote. So, some small measures were taken. By 1900, the number of physicians, nurses, and matrons employed by the Indian Bureau had increased marginally, though this did nothing to address any of the 
underlying issues causing diseases. In 1903, William Jones, then the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, had a health survey done across all Indian schools in the country. The results came back with a lot of what we talked about, which was much worse than Jones had expected. So a circular letter was sent around to address some of these issues. Doctors had to examine students before letting them into the schools. Checkups were mandatory, though this was often ignored, and school administration had to ensure their facilities were free of dust and students could get plenty of sunshine and fresh air. That last point actually came from a national tuberculosis expert who also recommended that students do exercises to strengthen their lungs and that all eye infections be treated promptly. To further combat tuberculosis, Francis Layup, who replaced Jones as Indian Commissioner in 1905, took things a step further and set up sanitarium schools for students who contracted tuberculosis. One was located just to the east of the Phoenix Indian School, though in the first five years of operation, 14% of six students that went to the sanitarium died. In coming decades, other Indian commissioners would try different tactics and even lobby the federal government for more funds, but most of the underlying problems remained. And these problems would last into the administration of FDR and beyond, which tells you that it's something that was never truly solved. Moving beyond the death and destruction, I want to turn to something a little bit lighter, but only kind of. There was no getting around the fact that the students at the Phoenix Indian School were being worked to death, sometimes literally, as we just saw, but there was some recreation as well. As I once joked back in episode 4, humans since the beginning of time have played sports, so it should be no surprise that the Phoenix Indian School would establish sports teams, especially baseball and football. Baseball was still a couple decades away from being really promoted by Phoenix Boosters, which turned it into the modern big moneymaker of spring training for major league teams, but it was still an incredibly popular sport. So, the Phoenix Indian School fielded a team that regularly competed, though they often had to cancel games for odd reasons like when all the balls were accidentally hit into a nearby lagoon. And when it comes to football, again the team regularly competed among local high schools and the Phoenix Junior College. The Phoenix Indian football team would even play as far away as Prescott, Bisbee, and even Southern California. Going into the early 20th century, girls' sports teams were also organized, especially a basketball team. In fact, I've seen what I think is a pretty hilarious photo of this girls' basketball team playing in their ankle-length, full-sleeve, blue dress uniforms. That could not have been comfortable. But arguably, one of the biggest extracurricular activities was the Phoenix Indian School Band. The band had been organized in 1894, just three years into the school's operation, as a means to encourage musical training. And right from the start, it was in high demand. As Trenert relates, in addition to playing at every school function, the band was also at all major events in Phoenix and even some across the Southwest. The 40-musician band would be given prominent building at carnivals, special exhibitions, fairs, and celebrations. One historian has noted that no event in Phoenix during this time was complete without the band's appearance. 
The students would often spend their summers and holidays traveling to these events with the money they earned streaming into the school's general fund. As I said, this was the lighter side of school life. However, and I admit that this could just be my cynical take on this, all of these extracurricular activities were just another form of exploitation. How, you might ask? Well, basically, these teams and band were novelty acts meant to draw in the curious and promote how well the Indians had been civilized. Superintendent McCowan collected comments from the public about the school's band, which he would show to his superiors as a sign of how pleased the public was with the quote-unquote improvement of the Indians. He would also get statements from the band members that he would use to demonstrate that the students themselves realized what a valuable opportunity they were receiving by coming to the school. The football team was often cheered on by making very un-PC comments about their heritage, such as one newspaper that wrote, quote, It is hoped that the Indian school footballists will return with a number of scalps dangling from their belts, end quote. And school officials were always there to strictly regulate conduct, so they could share glowing reports of the boys' gentlemanly behavior, even if it meant they were absolutely destroyed on the field. Finally, there was the school itself, which was turned into something of a tourist attraction. The school had a number of free public events, which Trenner describes as a valuable commodity for the bored, isolated residents of Phoenix. The annual memorial exercises at the end of the school year were thrown open to anyone who wanted to attend. In 1894, more than a thousand people came out to watch. Bolstered by the reception, school officials began inviting the public to Christmas exercises, tours of the school, and more. These were all designed to show off how well-behaved, cleaned, well-dressed, and educated these students had become. Typical routines included songs, a speech made by those students who were more fluent in English, skits with costumes, precision military drills, and an American flag ceremony. Because these events were meant to showcase how far the students had come from their barbarous roots and that the Indian problem was a thing of the past, they rarely included anything that represented their native cultures. There were some exceptions, such as when a group of students was allowed to demonstrate an Apache war dance. However, this was for a group of legislators, and Trenner opines that this piece of entertainment served as a reminder of the great progress the school was making with these once savages. Phoenix historian Bradford Luckingham also writes that sometimes students were dressed up as quote-unquote wild Indians, with the stereotypical war paint and costumes for these events, in order to contrast with the more refined, well-dressed students. It's very hard not to see a lot of this as the equivalent of a Wild West show, or, if I can stretch the metaphor just a little bit, the freak show from a classic P.T. Barnum circus. Tourists came in to see the strange and unusual and left thinking, wow, dress them up a bit, teach them a thing or two, and the Indians are just like us. The problem being that the Indians were only just like them because they were trapped in a system that was slowly trying to wring everything from their own culture out of them. And Phoenix was making a quick buck out of it by parading them around at events. But the biggest exploitation of all is what we are going to take a deep dive into next week. The outing system. 
What Pratt had started at the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania soon became a different animal once introduced in Phoenix, and ensured that while these civilized Indians would be working, they had no chance of getting ahead. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.